You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. See it on the news. See it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It was very surreal. It was very, um, this is not something you ever imagine happening to yourself. This is not something that you, you see it on the news all the time and you think, you know, oh man, I feel so bad for that family or, or what a horrible thing that those children are going through or what a horrible thing that, you know, those siblings or, or parents are, are going through and you never think that, that that's something that you would have to deal with yourself. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting so far away from Alexis Linkletter and so far away from Billy Jensen. We are one month in to quarantine recording, and I think we're all going crazy. We are going crazy. I'm doing a fun new thing because I'm not really going outside very often at all, (laughs) where I just wear ankle weights all day around the house. You know what? I just bought a pair of wrist weights because I... I'm in Orange County, so I can actually walk outside. There, everything is not completely closed down. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring some uh, wrist weights into my, my walking. I feel like a jazzerciser. So I, I also got wrist weights, but I put all of them. I put the ankle weights and the wrist weights on my ankles, so that I have five pounds on each leg all day when I'm walking you're, around. You're gonna get jacked, <laughs> Billy. Are you, are you joining into this workout, or what's I, going on? I'm not doing that particular workout, but I have, I did order a bench and, uh, luckily I had weights at home. So I've been working. Oh my God. We're all going to get jacked after this quarantine's over. Billy, what day is it today? We got a lot of good days, but it's national bookmobile day. Did you guys have a bookmobile? Yes. Yes. How great was that? The bookmobile came by the, well, the bookmobile would come to your house or like come to the, your street corner and then you could go inside and then pick out a book. Like it was a library. It was a transporting library. Billy, there's so many other good days. So many good days. There's McDonald's Day. Which I am Very so near and dear wanting. to my heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's also um, National Laundry Day. I don't know how everybody's doing with keeping up with their laundry, but I'm not. Haven't done it a single time since quarantine. <laughs> Just slowly running out of clothes. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Today's story is one that is very near and dear to my heart for a number of reasons. The first being that the detective who worked on this case is named Detective Pat Pistiglione. And he's probably my favorite detective, now retired detective, in the entire world. 
and I've worked with Pat now on two seasons of Investigation Discovery series, Deadly Recall, which coincidentally is premiering episode one of season two tonight at 10-9 Central. But that's not the only reason why this case is so important to me. We know it's often the case that people in vulnerable positions become victims of homicide, whether it be being down on your luck, struggling with addiction, whether it be suffering from mental illness, we know that those variables can make somebody a lot more susceptible to being targeted. Those who are victimized under these circumstances deserve justice just like everybody else. And it's up to law enforcement to treat every single victim of homicide the same. And that's exactly what Detective Pat Bistiglione did in this case. We're going to explore this case through the eyes of Detective Pat Bistiglione as he takes us through his investigative journey. We're also going to feel the very visceral and real experience of the victim's sister, which gives us the opportunity, like we always say, to put ourselves in her position. Because remember, this could be you. So today's case takes us back to June 26th of 2007. The top song on the radio was Rehab by Amy Winehouse and Live Free or Die Hard starring Bruce Willis and Justin Long was in the theaters. And we're going to go to Nashville, which is a city that needs no introduction. It's the capital of Tennessee, as well as the capital of country music. Line dancing, cowboys, comfort food, Western bars, all the things that we love here at the first degree. But unfortunate truth... As with all great places, Nashville has a dark side. And today's case starts at the North First Street truck stop in Nashville. It's 12.50 a.m. The truck stop's hired security guard was making his rounds around the perimeter of the premises when he made a horrific discovery. The police are called and responding officers illuminate the area and call in a homicide detective from Nashville PD's murder squad a veteran on the force, Detective Pat Bistiglione. Now, my position in the Metro National Police Department was I was the sergeant over the homicide cold case unit, and any time a case like this comes up, my unit would get notified. I would get notified first, and then I would uh, have a detective that's already been on call, and that detective would know the next, the next call out he would get. So I contacted Detective Freeman. I told him about the call. I told him the location. And we responded, uh, you know, to that scene. So I was a sergeant over the unit back in 2007. So Pat gets out of bed, gets dressed, and heads to the North First truck stop. Once Pat arrives, he approaches the body. The victim is a small woman who looks to be in her mid-20s. She has short brown hair and a pale complexion. She's completely nude and posed grotesquely. And when you did arrive on scene, what did you see when you approached... The victim. When you go to the north side of the truck stop, which we decide closest toward the interstate, um, the victim is lying on her back. She's uh, way in the back. A security guard had found the victim. He made two passes through. The second pass, he found the victim lying, I mean, literally lying out there in the open. And um, she was clearly displayed, uh, intentionally displayed. That was my opinion uh, that night anyway. And... Um, she was uh, had some sort of trauma around her head. It appeared to be possibly blunt force trauma, maybe a gunshot. Um, clearly deceased. Uh, she was naked on her back. 
she was, uh, her legs, her t- uh, feet were put together, soles of her feet were together, her legs were spread out, her genital area was exposed, and that was all done intentionally by the suspect. Seasoned homicide detectives will tell you that the motivation for posing a victim like this is to ensure maximum shock value and traumatize whoever discovers them, as well as maximum degradation to the victim. So in addition to this deliberate positioning, there were faint shoe prints on the inside of each of the victim's thighs. You can also see where the suspect stepped on the victim's upper legs. You can see the black marks from from the shoes where he pushed and forced her legs down uh, into that position. So he was bent on her being found in that displayed position for whatever his reasons were. Well, typically, when you have a victim that's been killed at a location, you know, uh, and, and you find the victim, uh, there's indications all around the victim. There's uh, uh, struggle marks, there's scuff marks, there's, um, if the victim had been stabbed or shot, there's going to be a lot of blood right there. And, and there's indications that the victim had been killed right where the victim was found. In this case, because there was very little blood, um, there was nothing to indicate there was any sort of a scuffle. The only thing that, that it looked to be was that the victim was literally placed down in this area, nothing around this area, even close to where the victim was, 50 feet in any direction, gave any indication that the victim had been killed. It looked uh, killed there. It looked more like the victim had been killed somewhere else and then placed in that area. Finding the person who was responsible for this murder would not be easy for a number of reasons, but also because truck stops are hotbeds for criminal activity. We've answered a lot of crime at truck stops, and the reason is because you have people coming in from all over the country, you know, truckers in particular. They come in from all, literally from all over the country. So they're looking for a little, a little illegal activity. That could be drugs. That could be prostitution. It could be any other kind of legal, uh, uh, illegal activity that they uh, get involved in because it's easy to do in a truck stop. You can do it and be out of the truck stop before anybody knows you, you've even been involved in any kind of criminal activity. So we've seen it before. At the scene, the forensics team combed the area for physical evidence, and there's no doubt that a scene like this poses many, many obstacles as well. It's highly trafficked, and there's trash and discarded items scattered everywhere. So there was little they could do in terms of determining which of these items could be valuable evidence and which are irrelevant. Everything would have to be tested, which is time-consuming. Next to the body, they find a very well-preserved shoe print in the mud, and the print has a distinct sneaker tread. Could it match the shoe imprints on Sarah's legs? Perhaps. Or maybe the shoe print was there before the victim had even been placed there. So where to start in this investigation? The first thing Pat needs to do is identify the victim. She has no clothing on her, let alone a purse or any identification. But luckily, Pat catches a break when he notices a silver bracelet on the woman's wrist. It's collected, and he learns that etched into the metal is the name Sarah Holbert. Pat would need to track down her family and give them the heartbreaking news. We have a, a chaplain on call that typically will assist us uh, in contacting family members and letting them know that their loved one had been uh, had been killed. Um, and then we become involved and we give the family as much detail as we can possibly give them without jeopardizing the case, of course. But I, I mean, it's difficult. You know, in this case, uh, we dealt primarily with uh, Roxy, um, Sarah's sister. And she was incredibly uh, supportive, incredibly helpful with us. She helped us at every turn. Anytime we needed something, we would call. It, it's a difficult thing to go to somebody's house, if, as you can imagine, and say, 
um, you know, I'm sorry to inform you that uh, your sister, your brother, or whatever the case may be, uh, has been killed. So here's Sarah's sister, Roxy. I was at work, and um, I got a call from my uncle, and he said, Roxy, something, something's happened. I need you to get to Mama's house right away. My family never called me at work when they knew that I was busy and doing things, so I knew that something, you know, bad had happened. Didn't think that it would have been uh, Sarah. I thought maybe, you know, her grandmother had a stroke or her grandfather, you know, had a heart attack or somebody was in an accident. The last thing on my mind was something that happened to my baby sister until I had um, gotten to my grandmother's house and uh, everyone was there. Um, My grandmother was crying hysterically and they had told us that um, Sarah had passed and they had found her. Pat learns a bit about Sarah and Roxy's upbringing. Roxy and Sarah's mom died when they were young and that's when Sarah was five and Roxy was nine. After that, they were separated. Sarah stayed in Washington to be raised by an aunt and uncle, and the other sisters remained in Nashville to be raised by relatives there. When Sarah turned 18, she moved back to Nashville to be near her sisters and their family, and this is where she met a boy, she fell in love, and had two children. Eventually, that relationship fell apart, and while Sarah was committed to being a good mother, she had always had a wild side, and she started partying and going out a lot more and more and more. And as it is in so many cases, her partying and recreational drug use morphed into a drug addiction and lifestyle that Sarah struggled to get under control and get herself out of. Unfortunately, uh, she got caught up in in, um, alcohol and and, um, sampled with drugs and things to that nature. And they kind of took over her life a little bit. But we always um, tried to help her find her way back. Uh, no matter what, we never gave up on her, no matter how many times that, you know, she went a little on the dark side. We always uh, tried to make sure that she knew that we loved her, even though, you know, we wanted to beat the far out of her sometimes. But we always loved her and always wanted the best for her and and um, wanted to help her, you know, through her dark times. It's hard to say where her darkness came from, but I feel like she had abandonment issues. We tried to, you know, be as close to her and, and help her through that as as much as we could. In the beginning, we didn't have a lot of answers. Um, there were more questions than answers. Um, we knew that she was a little bit in the dark side again. Um, we weren't sure uh, to what extent. And uh, we just did anything and everything in our power, you know, to get answers. At that time, we want we wanted answers. The who, the why, the where, the when, the how. Um, and it was just, it was just devastating. That was, you know, the last thing in the world that we anticipated because, you know, she was only 27 years old. She was, you know, still, still a young woman, still had plenty of life, uh, plenty of, of love and, and things to to share with us and to explore with us and and uh, that was the last thing in the world that we were anticipating. Pat starts with Roxy. Was there anything she could tell him about the days leading up to her sister's murder? Anything about her sister's relationships, her hobbies, or hangout spots? 
Detective Pastiglione and Lee Freeman um, both uh, came to the house and, and talked with all of us on numerous occasions trying to get as much information as we could. You know, do you know where Sarah was going? Do you know who she was with? Do you know what she did last? You know, what condition was she in the last time you saw her? Detective Pastiglione and Detective Freeman were very uh, opening and and. Uh, very nice to our family and, and very uh, we were very appreciative to how uh, they dealt with us and kept us informed you know let us know some of the things we may not want to know some of the things we did definitely want to know and uh, they let us be as involved in the investigation as we possibly could without interfering so Roxy told Pat that on the evening that Sarah was murdered, Sarah said she was going on a dinner date with a friend, which was something she seemed really, really excited about. Sarah um, had said she was going to dinner with a friend. I think she had had a date. Uh, she was going on a date as well. Uh, she seemed excited about that. Um, she dressed up, put her makeup on, got her hair done. Uh, she she was excited. I saw Sarah briefly um, that day, just hanging out, having a good time, just enjoying one another until uh, later on that evening. Of course, I told her I loved her and, and, you know, told her to stay out of trouble, you know, make good decisions. She, of course, told me to shut up. (laughs) She knew what she was doing. And I was like, well, big sister, I'm always going to worry. We said our goodbyes, not knowing that was going to be our last goodbye. So who is this person who Sarah had dinner plans with? And could this person be responsible for killing her? Um, Philip is the gentleman that my sister uh, was excited about going on the date with. I had never met him. I don't know a whole lot about him. The only thing that I really know is that he was an older gentleman, that he didn't mind spending money on her. What about the father of Sarah's children? What was the state of his and Sarah's relationship? We all know what they say. It's always the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, or the husband. Was that going to be true in this case? Sarah's relationship with John was on and off again. They were like uh, fire and ice. They were great one minute together, bad one minute together, and, and it was just off and on, hot or cold. There was no happy medium. So Pat learns more about some of Sarah's more unsavory friends. Their street names were Hollywood and Lee. Hollywood and Lee were with Sarah at some point um, that day. And I I believe um, that that's where she would get some of her drugs and things to that nature from. Um, I've never personally met Hollywood. Lee, we grew up knowing. He grew up, you know, down the road from us. We knew him our whole lives. Okay, so Pat really has his work cut out for him. He needs to take a look into John, the man Sarah had a date with, whose name is Philip, and also Hollywood and Lee. And of course, it was totally possible that none of these people were responsible at all. Sarah could have been killed by a complete stranger. And Pat hoped this wasn't the case, because that would make this case much, much more difficult to solve. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. 
I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So Pat pulls all the surveillance footage from the cameras at the truck stop where Sarah was found. And there are dozens of camera angles from the truck stop, as well as neighboring businesses. And... It's surveillance footage, so the quality is grainy, the angles are weird, um, it lacks detail, and it would take hundreds of hours to go through all of this footage. And it made it more difficult by the fact that at this point, they didn't know what they were looking for. So while truck stops are utilized by a great deal of truckers, they're also utilized by civilians. Commuters, families on road trips, a lot of people use truck stops. So while the officers took turns sifting through the footage, Pat started questioning witnesses. And Pat begins with the truck stop's hired security guard who made the initial discovery. 
The man is obviously shaken, and he explains to Pat that he made his security rounds of the truck stop's parking lot every 30 minutes or so. So at 12.20, he finished one round, where he passed the location that Sarah was found, but he definitely said that she was not there at that time. It was during his 12.50 a.m. round that he walked by and made the grim discovery. So Pat figures that the killer had dumped the body between 12.20 and 12.50 a.m., which is a really tight 30-minute window. So this is good. This is something that Pat can use because the truck stop had surveillance cameras. Pat questions John, who is Sarah's ex-boyfriend and the father of her children. And it turned out that John was more than 2,500 miles away from Nashville when Sarah would have been left at the truck stop. So it's not something that John could have physically done himself. Pat takes an assessment of this guy, and he seems sincere. Things between Sarah and him seemed amicable, and he's not sounding off any alarm bells to Pat. So while no one is ever ruled out completely until a case is solved, Pat felt comfortable ruling John out at this point and putting him on the back burner. Pat then moves to Phil, the man who Sarah had a date with on the evening she went missing. Phil is a successful local businessman, which makes him easy to find. He agrees to meet Pat at the Metro PD headquarters for an interview. Phil's question at length about his relationship with Sarah, and it seemed that they both treated the relationship pretty casually. And Pat determines that it's unlikely that Phil is the one responsible for Sarah's murder. And he doesn't rule him out completely. He starts exploring other leads. And of course, all the while Pat is taking a hard look at those close to Sarah as potential suspects, he's also leaning into the very realistic possibility that Sarah's killer could be connected to the world of long-haul trucking and be completely random and unknown to her. So, of course, Pat wants to question Sarah's party friends, Hollywood and Lee. But he has a really difficult time trying to locate them. And Lee, who had known Roxy and Sarah for years, wasn't returning Roxy's calls. But eventually, Roxy does get through to them, and they agree to meet Pat at Metro PD headquarters. So when they get there, they're really cagey and reluctant to talk to them at first. But eventually, they do admit to seeing Sarah the night that she was murdered. Apparently, Sarah wanted to party after her date with Philip, so she met up with the guys. The group of them wanted to do some drugs, so they all went to that North First Street truck stop, which is where Sarah's body was eventually found. So this is super interesting. Hollywood and Lee are placing themselves with Sarah at the truck stop the night that she was found murdered. But what they said is they went to the truck stop to find drugs. Sarah got out of the car and then disappeared between two of the truck trailers. Hollywood and Lee were expecting her to come back after a while, but hours and hours ended up passing and there was no sign of her. So they just figured that she had found somebody to party with and just bailed. We hear this a lot in cases, uh, particularly when somebody goes missing. Uh, uh, You see it a lot with intimate relationship crimes where the guy is driving on a road and says, oh, the girlfriend just got out of the car and then I just drove away and that was the last I saw of her. You know, these... Two people saying she just went off into the trucks and we didn't find them. That's going to be that's suspicious. It's super suspicious. And then also just in general, being the last people to see somebody who was murdered is absolutely terrifying. And I think whether you're innocent or guilty, you're going to be scared to talk to the police because God forbid if you're innocent and they could pin it on you anyways. It's a very sticky situation to be put in. Well, right. And the fact that they were avoiding coming in for questioning and avoiding talking to Roxy, who Lee had known for years, and avoiding Pat's attempts at reaching them is also not a good look. 
not a good look. And they also just don't know where she went. So it's not like they even have a, like a finite idea of what happened the last time that they saw her. Exactly. So their account is suspiciously open-ended. Why didn't they go looking for her? They left without her. She has no ride home. That's a pretty shitty couple of friends. But if they did kill Sarah, why are they being so candid about that evening? But they were also evasive when Pat and Roxy were trying to track them down, as I said. Pat has stared into the eyes of so many murderous criminals. He's told me all about this stuff, but he didn't see it in these guys. What he sees is a few low-level criminals who were scared to be implicated in their friend's murder. And although he's not ruling them out completely, he does also get the feeling about them that they're not involved. So he puts them on the back burner as well while he keeps digging. Because of course, they also need evidence. They're waiting for forensics to come back. There may be something that directly implicates them once the science is completed. But right now he doesn't have that. So he's relying on his instincts and he's going to keep going. Yeah, because what are you going to expect from... There's two individuals that were looking to score drugs. Uh, They've done this a while. They've done this a bunch of times. And if one of them goes off to go get drugs and then doesn't come back, what are they going to do? At at some point, they're going to go and try to find more drugs. Uh, It's not... It's not completely unheard of or out of the question for uh, for something like this to happen. So with every suspect that Pat clears, he's leaning more and more towards the likelihood that Sarah's killer was a stranger to her. And it's probably someone she encountered at the truck stop after she was left there by her friends. The reality of a truck stop killer is not a comforting one. It's like finding a needle in a haystack hiding amongst 4 million long-haul truckers operating in the United States. None of the men that Pat has questioned have raised any alarm bells for him. Then he gets a call from the coroner's office. On the call, Pat learns that there was a piece of flesh that had been cleanly cut from Sarah Holbert's body, which was odd because Sarah Holbert had not been killed with a knife. So it's not going to be a laceration that happened in the attack or anything like that. She had been killed with a gunshot wound, as we said. So what could be the explanation for this? It's at this moment that Pat remembered something Roxy said when he was questioning her, that Sarah had a tattoo of a pair of lips on her lower right back at the top of her right buttock. This is the same area where flesh had been removed from Sarah's body. So this is a very ominous moment because this means that Sarah's killer had taken a flesh trophy. Sometimes people do this to hide identity, but leaving the bracelet with Sarah's name on it doesn't really point to that. And you know, the the person who killed her didn't take any other precautions as far as trying to hide the identity of this woman. So taking of flesh trophies is often an earmark of a serial killer. But Pat couldn't know for sure if Sarah had been murdered by a serial killer without any more evidence. So Pat consults with colleagues and communicates with neighboring police departments to see if there are any other cases that shared characteristics with the MO in Sarah's case. And there was a woman named Samantha Winters. She had gone missing from Nashville and her body was discovered in a trash can at the Pilot Travel Center truck stop that was 40 miles away in Lebanon, Tennessee. So could these cases be connected? Pat pulls Samantha's case file and notes that characteristics of her crime are much different than Sarah's. Samantha was disposed of in a trash can in an upright position before her killer filled the remaining space of the bin with trash on top of her. And while these two scenes differed vastly, the two cases did share three similarities. Both had a 9mm gunshot to the head, and both women were found at a truck stop, and both were moved and dumped post-mortem. So Pat requests ballistics testing be done on the bullets in each case. He knows that the crime scenes are different, but 
he requests assistance from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation to perform advanced ballistic testing from each of the murders to see maybe if they match up. So meanwhile, Pat gets an update about what was turned up in the surveillance footage from the truck stop. And interestingly, only one vehicle had entered the truck stop within the appropriate time frame for when Sarah's body was dumped there. It was a yellow long-haul truck with a white cab and a purple stripe down the side. It arrived at 1224 and left the truck stop at 1240, in total only staying there for 16 minutes. And remember, we had heard from the guard who was walking around, he had not seen the body at one point, and then when he went back a little bit before one, he saw the body. A lot of video, you know, we collected video from all the neighboring businesses, and Detective Freeman and I, we went through many, many hours of uh, video, um, and there was a particular video where they showed a yellow truck, a yellow tractor, go inside the truck stop, spend approximately 16 minutes in there, and then come back out. That truck was of interest to us. Why? It was of interest because that's around the same time we believe Sarah's body was dumped inside the truck stop. So it was, you know, to our, to our best interest to try to identify that truck. On the video, you really couldn't see any identifying marks, couldn't see any names, couldn't see anything to tell us who the company was other than it was a fairly large yellow tractor pulling a box type trailer. And we believe it to be in the the truck stop around that same time. So it it was imperative that we try to identify that truck somehow. We tried to enhance the video, but that that didn't really help us. It was a grainy video, like you say. The most obvious thing was the color. It It was a yellow colored tractor. They were unable to see what the truck or its driver did once in the parking lot, but they checked all the transaction records for that evening, and no one made any purchases. No fuel, no chips, no nothing within that time frame. So the truck driver did something in the lot for 16 minutes. But what? Was it something innocuous, like fixing his radio, checking his tires, referencing a map, getting out the truck to stretch his legs? Is 16 minutes enough time to dump and pose a body without being seen by other patrons of the truck stop? Possibly, especially if done by someone brazen enough. Unfortunately, there was no camera angle that showed Sarah's remains physically being placed there. And while security cameras pick up a great number of angles and vantage points, there are countless perspectives that are obstructed by these massive trucks. The bulk of the criminal activity that occurs at truck stops happens between the walls of long-haul cabs and inside the trucks themselves, places no cameras have access to. This is disheartening. There are likely many, many trucks like this, and long-haul truck drivers are able to cut through multiple states in a single day. The person in this truck could literally be anywhere, and the driver could be anyone in the United States. Then the ballistics on Sarah and Samantha's case were in. The results were in. And... They were a match. And you know what this means, right? These cases, they're connected. And where there's one, where there's two, there's surely to be three. I had the ballistics from Lebanon, Tennessee, compared to the ballistics in Nashville, Tennessee. I learned of a third homicide in Birmingham, Alabama. I had those ballistics also examined by the same TBI agent here in, in Nashville, and he was able to tell us that it came from the same gun. 
So obviously we're dealing now with at least three homicides. So clearly the pressure is on because one of those three homicides occurred after our victim was killed. Now, as, as we had feared, when you're dealing with a, a serial killer, the serial killer is going to keep on killing um, until you catch him. You know, my experience with serial killers is they, uh, they either stop killing by being arrested or they stop killing because they die. They typically don't just stop killing. Um, and, and in this case, we had three homicides that we knew were connected. So, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, it's, it's self-induced pressure for the most part. You know, you, you're doing your best to try to figure out, you know, who did it. And what makes these cases difficult is that you're dealing with stranger-on-stranger stranger homicides, typically. You're dealing, when you're dealing with a serial killer, typically the, the serial killer has absolutely no idea who he just killed. And that we believe that to be the case with all three homicides, that our suspect had no idea who he was killing other than they were female victims. And that was enough for him. He didn't care who they were. So that makes it difficult when you're dealing with stranger on stranger type homicides. You know, you have to you have to rely on forensics. You have to rely on um, eyewitnesses. You have to rely on any sort of, you know, trace evidence that could lead to a name. And then once I got with the FBI, uh, we began to pinpoint other cases that he had been involved in. And it was all around the same time frame. So I knew this, this particular person was clearly out of control. Typically, a serial killer will uh, have a cool, what they call a cooling down period. He'll kill somebody, have a cooling down period, and then he'll get all uh, into, the, into the mindset again of killing and searching for another victim and then killing that victim. This is going to be sort of an abstract question. And if you don't know how to answer it or want to, because it's sort of more emotional than investigative, that's totally fine. For you... I think about this case in particular, and I think about the other people you were investigating, you know, the ex-boyfriend, the older boyfriend, Hollywood and Lee, right? Right. Do you think it's worse when you had to tell Roxy and Sarah's family that, no, in fact, it's a serial killer? How do people usually react to that? Because the randomness is almost harder, harder to swallow than reason. For me, at least it would be. You mean if we're dealing with a serial killer versus a boyfriend or something along those lines? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's difficult when, um, you know, once once we were able to eliminate uh, boyfriends and people associated with the victim, people known to the victim, we were able to eliminate them. Then it was clear that we were dealing with somebody connected to the truck stop, and then we take it even a step further and we got a match on the ballistics. And now we know for certain that we're dealing with a serial killer. So... Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I mean, emotionally, yeah, uh, you know, when you're dealing with, like I say, when you're dealing with a serial killer, I mean, it, it's a difficult thing because the serial killer is still killing. So, you know, you, you're, try, you're trying to, he's a step ahead of you. So you, you, you're trying to catch him. You know, you might be a step behind him, but at the same time, he may still be killing. Uh, and in this case, he was, like I say, he was actively killing. So, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of pressure on, on the detectives involved. It's a lot of pressure on, you know, the, the family's doing their best to try to help you. They concerned about, uh, in this case, they were, uh, Roxy was concerned about her sister's homicide. She was trying to do her best to help us on that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. You know, you, you try to give the family as much information as you possibly can, but then you have to be careful, too. You don't want to give the, all the information away. You don't want to... You don't want to jeopardize anything, you know, not because you suspect the family, but because it's, it's always best to, to keep a lot of the information back. You tell the family as much as you can. And that's what we did here, you know. But, yeah, it, I mean, it's from an emotional standpoint, it's um, it's draining. It really, it really is. It's emotionally draining to, to try to figure out who, who did this. You know, when you're dealing with a serial killer, it, it multiplies it many times um, in terms of pressure. 
So the pressure Pat's describing is obviously immense, not just because he's trying to catch a serial killer before the serial killer strikes again, but also because we have family members of these women, Sarah's family in particular, in the form of Roxy, that he doesn't want to disappoint and he doesn't want to let down because justice needs to be had for Sarah. It was very surreal. It was very, um, this is not something you ever imagine happening to yourself. This is not something that you, you see it on the news all the time and you think, you know, oh man, I feel so bad for that family or, or what a horrible thing that those children are going through or what a horrible thing that, you know, those siblings or, or parents are, are going through. And you never think that, that that's something that you would have to deal with yourself. And it's, it's uh, very, very hard. It was so many different emotions hitting you at once. And it was, it was hard to uh, put it all in, in, into words. It was, it was anger. It was frustration. It was um, not understanding why someone um, could do what they did to Sarah and, and not, you know, turn themselves in or, or, you know, feel remorse or anything to that nature. We just, we wanted um, the person that was responsible for taking Sarah from us. We wanted him in custody. We wanted him in jail or whatever that needed to be done to him so that he couldn't put any other family through what our family went through and was going through. It, it, it was, it's hard to lose your mom and, and, you know, our greatest fears were uh, for our children to lose us at a young age and to have to grow up without their mom like we had to grow up without our mom. And that was, I think that was a big challenge for Sarah. That was something that she wanted to make sure that uh, never happened, but unfortunately it wasn't left up to her. Someone else decided for her. so grateful to Roxy for sharing her story with us and to Pat for taking us through his investigation. But as you can tell, this story is far from over. We're going to continue this story with both guests on next week's episode as we walk you through the investigation that brought Pat face to face with the serial killer he was hunting. Pat has solved many fascinating cases over the span of his career, each more interesting than the last. So definitely check out Deadly Recall on Investigation Discovery. Tonight, 10, 9 central. And not just because of Pat. I mean, we love Pat, but also because I worked on the show with an amazing team. We poured blood, sweat, and tears into every episode, including the episode airing tonight, which profiles the homicide of football legend, Steve McNair. So definitely check it out. All right. Well, until next week, follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Come join our Facebook group. Just search the first degree up in the search bar on Facebook and stick around because we're going to kill some time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and only you can prevent the coronavirus and keep your friends close. But But not not closer closer than than six six feet. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. 
Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. All right, welcome to Killing Time. I made sure not to put the the in there. It was a very <laughs> conscious effort, Alexis. People are rooting for the the. Everyone was so pleased when you forgot when you said it, it last was, week. I know. You know, I don't care if I'm the only person standing on this side. I'm still I'm still going to stand strong for what I believe in. Um, Jack, Jack, I'm with you. You're with me? Yeah. Yes. Yes. This is why I'll win because the underdog always wins. <laughs> I know. And you do have like an army of all of the firsties behind you where then it's just me and Billy in our own corner. And I don't know it's if I, I really uh, trust Billy's fighting abilities. No, I'm either people's favorite or they hate me. It just can only be one of two ways. <laughs> That's true. You're very po- polarizing. Yeah, it's a, it's a good quality to have. I kind of sit in the middle because I'm you're, there's just there's just Politi- you know. you're just politically correct. You know. You got to be these days. (laughs) You Um, do. You do. So for this killing time, we, I think, are just going to just chat about quarantine life, update everybody on what we're doing to fill our days, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. What we've been eating, what we've been watching, what we've been reading, what we haven't been doing. Are you guys unproductive as fuck, too? I'm productive, but it's not easy. Like, I get out of bed at 11 because I'm just up till four because I'm just my everything's thrown off. But once I'm out of bed, then I'm super productive. And I came up with this new um, trick where if you put shoes on in the morning shoes. in the house, yeah, take a shower, throw on workout clothes or sweats, put on shoes. The second you put on shoes, you feel productive. And it's you switch from feeling like you're homesick to feeling like you work from home. And things I was procrastinating doing, like taking the trash out or this, once you have shoes on, you start to just do shit. It's really weird. What, what kind of a shoe? Are we talking a sneaker? A sneaker. Okay. Sneaker. So I throw on a sneaker and then you suddenly find yourself just working more and being more productive. It's really weird, but it works. Well, this is this is how I feel about... Well, my normal everyday outfit is leggings. So when I wear leggings, I don't feel like I'm unproductive. That's just like my normal... If I'm out and about doing a normal work day. I'm in leggings. So if I change into a sweat pant in the morning, that's where my productivity goes down the drain. But if I put on my like mm-hmm. legging and a t-shirt, it's like a different, whole different ballpark. Try the shoes. I'm telling you. I think that, that's a really, that's a really cool idea, actually. The I've shoes? been putting on ice skates in the morning and it's, oh. it's, I found it's really made me very productive. Billy, what, are you so bummed you haven't been able to play hockey? Yeah, I basically I'm playing hockey with myself. I have two pucks. I skate down to the basketball court, which has uh, tape around it because they don't want anybody playing basketball, like yeah. police tape. And I skate around there and I try to pass the puck to myself by bouncing it <laughs> off of a wall. And it's really, really sad. It's basically me when I was 14. Wait, do you have roller blades? 
Yes, I have rollerblades. Yeah. Okay, so you're going on your rollerblades. I I'm did going see. On my rollerblades, yes. I saw this thing on Facebook for um, figure skaters and how they can practice in quarantine. It's it's these little like slip slidey things you can put on mm-hmm. your feet and yep. slide around in your house. So maybe you should get those and practice. I've, ha- I've had those before. They even make like a plastic sheet that you could make just to work out your your groin muscles and your glutes, which is the two biggest muscles for skating. Do you think that maybe you should Thank start you. practicing some double axles and some tricks while you're at home? I, you know what? I'm, my stick handling better get better because that's all I've been able to do because I have no friends. So. <laughs> you also thought basketball was a single person sport. He was like pissed because the park was closed and he was telling me, yeah, I mean, you can play basketball by yourself. And like, you that's can. not playing basketball. You can shoot, that's hoops. You can shoot, you can shoot hoops. hoops. That's not playing a game of basketball. Uh. <laughs> He's like, yes, basketball, it is. Basketball no. is the one sport out of any of the sports where one person can practice and and practice the most amount of skills by themselves because there's nobody gar- guarding the hoop. That's because you're not yeah, playing guess, a game. You're alone. I, I know what you're saying, though, because like even in soccer, you if yeah. you have a guard in soccer, you can't really mm-hmm. practice the same yeah. amount. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, anyways, what have you guys been watching? Do we have any new... Any new shows? Yes. Yeah, so Docs. I I binged um, Ozark all three seasons within four days. Oh my god! It is the world's new Sopranos. It is the best show I've seen in a really long time. So there's that. Then Jack, I texted you about watching this last night. The Imposter. And Billy, yeah, this is, is this something a fiction. No. And this is something it's on um, Amazon Prime. And this is something Kev told me to watch because it just blew his mind. And he was like you have to watch this and it's the craziest shit. So I'll give you guys um, a summary of what it is without telling you what happens. So a little boy goes missing and three years later, he turns up in Spain and the kid who shows up, they're like, Oh my God, he's found what oh. a crazy, miraculous story. And the kid who shows up is not him. Wait, is this, not the kid this happened recently. Right. And it didn't, and not end super up being recently, like a 25 year old guy. Yeah. And he, okay. and then everybody, believe like the family believes it's him the real kid even though Still. the eye color is different no i'm not going to give away no. the rest but <laughs> well, it like, is god but it's the craziest like shared delusion that's what i was texting you jack really late last night i was like you have to watch this you will love this because it'll blow your mind because everybody just wants to believe it's their missing son or brother so badly that they go along with it but then there are all the, there are all these twists and theories about why they chose to accept this person who so clearly wasn't their son and, and all this Ooh, stuff. So you just, you have to psychology. watch it. There's like all these twists in the story that it, it was baffling. It's baffling. And it made all these huge news headlines where people are like, welcome home, little Billy. And it was, everyone was going along with it until suddenly there were like these friends at little Billy. Who, it was not little Billy. That's not the kid's name. I can't remember right now, but you guys will die. It is so good. And then I watched this documentary on Hulu called Tickled. Have you guys seen it or heard about it? I don't know, but no. this does not sound like something I would like. I fucking hate being tickled. So Tickled is crazy. It's about this person who pays like men, young men who are in college or whatever, offers them like $2,000 to be tickled on camera, right? And they're like, it's not a big Ooh. deal. It's it's like competitive Mm-mm-mm. tickling, whatever. And the guys show Wait, up. Who is the person? Who is the person? Like, so, how old's the person? Is it a man? Obviously. So this is what's interesting. So the internet person who solicits these um, 
young men to do this is a woman named like Tickle Terry or something. That's like her screen name. Mm-hmm. But it turns out to be like this super creepy old guy. And then once the boys, the young men find out the, these videos go up on YouTube and they're mortified because they're like college jocks and shit. They start blackmailing them. And it's just like the craziest shit I've oh ever God. seen in my life too. It's really good. <laughs> I'm watching it tickled. And, okay, it's, Billy. and it's live because the, the guy who's narrating is sort of the, the investigator and he's like confronting him in airports and shit about this stuff. And it's just a, cr- it's crazy. It's, it's true crime Tickly without Terry. anyone dying. Tick, tickle Terry. I love this random shit. Um, Billy, what have you been watching? Let's see. I started watching... Actually, for some reason, I had oxygen on. I started watching Mark of a Killer because they were doing their... Um, so I watched an episode about Alcala because we're so, we've been so into Alcala on Murder Squad these past couple of weeks. Uh, and then I'm, I'm into season two of Ozark, so I can't learn anything else about it. And Alexis keeps on telling me. Spoilers. <sighs> I do not. I can't know. You guys both. You guys both shot past me because everybody in my household is also way past me, so I have no time to catch up on my own. So I don't know when I'm ever going to get past all the time in the world, except for <laughs> yeah, except every hour of the day. <laughs> you know, I'm very particular about when I watch certain shows, and Ozark is a type of show I need to watch at nighttime. That's ve- that's a very nighttime show. Yeah, yeah. I don't like. I feel. Like Love Island, for example, also, I have to watch Love Island at night and any right. any true crime kind of at night, except for an unsolved mysteries. That's a daytime. So I have these specific times. Ooh. So then, you know, I don't know. It just isn't working out for everybody's schedule. I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, I watched an amazing documentary last night called Rain Sisters. And oh. it's about two identical twin sisters who both have autism and are both savants. And it's just about this hurt their entire story over the past 20 years. And this one um, journalist was just obsessed with them. So he followed them around for the past 20 years. And they're obsessed with Dick Clark, or they were obsessed with Dick Clark back in the day. So it kind of shows their whole experience, um, like meeting him and all this kind of shit. And they have like every day they would watch his show and write down all this stuff. And it was a really heartwarming, um, really cool documentary. Oh, cool. I mean, really Dick, Clark, Dick Clark was a, an incredible icon for music. I mean, forget it. You remember TRL and how big that was? Carson, Carson? Daly and everything. <gasps> D- D- times that by a hundred and that's Dick Clark. Hmm. Really? Oh, yeah. I guess that was before my time. Like I remember no, Dick was, Clark. But yeah, no, that was like, if you wanted to break out um, and become a national sensation, that was the place to go. It was the Dick Clark show, American Bandstand. Well, they Love loved it. him for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. Do we have any other like life hacks? Any other quarantine tips? I feel like I don't have any exciting foods to talk about, <laughs> except I have been eating um, turkey corn dogs, which have also been an adventure for me. Actually, on the Facebook group, people were saying that you did not invent a new food. That was I never claimed to invent that. I never claimed to invent that. But I was so pleased that so many people are enthusiastic about it or horrified by it. And what we're talking about are my like pickle snacks that I make. (laughs) Pickle pickle wrapped in a deli meat with cream cheese and then cut up into little sushi bites. I just love that. I mean, everybody was like, I have this every day. And there were hundreds of comments on that post. <laughs> like, everybody is down for the pickle bites, which I love. I know, Jack, I'm you keep saying you're going to make them. Why haven't you done this? Well, the problem is my pickles are pickle rounds. So mm. I really got to figure 
figure out the logistics. It's of the this great thing. pickle shortage of Orange County. Right. They, I'm telling you, there is. I well, my exciting um, meal tip that I'll say before we go is. Shake Shack, I don't know if I've talked about this yet, but Shake Shack is sending meal kits. So you can oh. order eight Shake Shack burgers and they'll mail it to you. All of the ingredients, the buns they use, the burgers, the sauce, the cheese, the everything to your door and you can make Shake Shack at home. So that oh, is wow. my awesome. quarantine tip. I just got mine today. So I'm going to try them tonight. And I will That's my God, fun. I just I need these little, these little tidbits of you know, of joy throughout my Normalcy. day. Normalcy. Totally. Normalcy. I love it. Ugh. Well, we killed some ready time. ready to call it? Let's we, call we it. We killed some time? All right. Time of death, 11.59. Beep. Beep. No beep for you, Billy. Beep, beep. Motherfuckers. Beep, beep. beep. Um,